0: You are listening to Particular Pilgrims, stories from Reformed Baptist history with commentary. I'm your host, Ron Miller, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church of Clarksville, Tennessee, and a longtime student and collector of Particular Baptist history. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. I want to introduce you to John Fawcett, another one of the many excellent evangelical pastors from particular Baptist life in 1700s England. I plan to give you his biography soon, but first I'd like to review one of his many writings. This one entitled, The Constitution and Order of a Gospel Church Considered. What a typical 18th century title. This was first published in 1797 when Fawcett was in his late fifties and living near the church he pastored at Hebden Bridge in Northern England. The work is 58 pages long and appears to be an extended edition of a sermon. Perhaps he was called to preach it to a Baptist association meeting or something similar. But in any case, it's an overview of Baptist polity. Church polity deals with how a church should be structured, both internally and in relation to other churches. So this booklet answers the whole range of questions concerning what is a church, How is one formed? How is it governed? What are its offices? How does it relate to other churches? And so on. It's an excellent introduction to the subject. It grounds its views in Scripture, covers a full range of topics, and is a classic and confessionally compatible view of the subject. We live in a day when such questions are thought to be unimportant it is often claimed that the scriptures give very little, if any, data to answer these questions. Or if they do, they are not regulative for the life of the church. And so these issues are decided on the basis of personal preference, pragmatism, or someone's business model. But this approach denigrates the sufficiency of the scriptures and requires us to believe the rather silly view that Christ, the exalted head of the church, doesn't actually care in practice how his church is constituted or run. The early particular Baptists held to none of that nonsense. Instead, they believed, as Fawcett states, that, quote, everything necessary to be known on this subject of the nature and order of the churches of Jesus Christ is to be found in the Bible and more especially in the New Testament. Simply and powerfully, Fawcett argues that God's express commands and the apostolic practices are to be followed, because their practices are, quote, a sort of precept to us, seeing we are commanded to be followers of them as they were followers of Christ. So he grounds all the necessary parts of polity in the Scriptures. Outside of those, there is liberty which calls for the use of holy wisdom. Fawcett quickly moves to the definition of the church. He understands the term to be used in several ways. First, for the whole body of God's chosen people in every time period, which may be called, quote, the real, the invisible, the Catholic, or the universal church. Another sense is that of what he calls the visible church, which consists of all real believers in every part of the earth. Finally, he says, quote, the more general sense of the term church as used in the New Testament is that of an assembly of Christians united together and meeting in one place for the solemn worship of God. He argues against any national, provincial, or diocesan churches, that is, a geographical region with multiple churches overseen by a bishop. In this part of his sermon, as in all of it, he floods us with scripture quotes and allusions. He was a man steeped not merely in a church tradition, but in the Bible. Instead of these faulty church forms, Fawcett defends the idea of congregational churches, meaning they should consist in members joined together for worship and fellowship. These members should be converted men and women as best as can be determined. He puts it this way, quote, the primitive churches consisted of persons who appeared in a judgment of charity to be the subjects of that divine change essential to vital Christianity. Then he references an abundance of verses showing the need for churches to consist of those who have been born again or renewed or made alive to God then he emphasizes that, quote, the new birth is evidenced by its fruits. And so churches should consist of penitent persons, as he calls them, who act as disciples of Christ. He sums up, such persons, as we have briefly described, are the only proper subjects of a gospel church. The way he weaves the scripture text together to make his points in this section is really marvelous. Next, he argues for churches being formed by mutual consent or by the use of a covenant. Historically, both methods, very similar to each other, were used in the official formation of particular Baptist churches. He allows for either, saying that the important fact is that a gospel church is a voluntary society formed by the mutual agreement of believers. In other words, commitment is required. He follows this with several wonderful pages filled with the advantages of church fellowship. This is an encouraging section that gives today's pastors scriptural ammunition against arguments that deny the need or benefits of church membership. He follows with a polite but direct challenge to those who, quote, choose to walk alone charging them with lack of integrity or defects in their love for Christ. He was polite, but he was pointed. Since churches are gathered to worship God, Fawcett then discusses the several parts of it. He lists such things as prayer, thanksgiving, singing, preaching, and especially, he emphasizes the Lord's Supper. It is clear he thought it best done weekly to correspond to the Lord's Day. He goes into detail on the mechanics of the supper, which he recommends should be followed by a collection for the poor and church expenses, and then with a song of praise. His description of the spiritual nature and blessings of the holy meal show his familiarity with the joys of the table. He goes so far as to say, it is a Christian's nearest approach to his God and Savior while in this world. And it is no mere remembrance, but a faith enhancing act. As he puts it, quote, we by faith receive him and apply him to our souls with all his saving benefits. He treats the ordinance of baptism in a similar way. This all is a rich view of worship indeed, and a call to recover this kind of living spirituality. Next, he covers the topics of church independence and interrelationship. He eloquently states the historic Baptist position about the limits of church discipline and liberty. "...no church has any power to inflict corporal punishment on its offending members, or to do anything that may affect their civil liberty or temporal property." much less to impose anything upon their consciences. It extends no farther in the case of offenders than to brotherly admonition, reproof, censure, and exclusion from the society where no evidence of repentance is apparent. You see, there's no confusion in his mind of the civil and church spheres. This is followed by a fine treatment of church offices, elder and deacon, and the right or power of a local church to select their own. He discusses extraordinary offices, such as apostle and prophet, but spends most of his time on the qualifications, names, and duties of the ordinary offices. This is full of mature and practical advice. Adding members through baptism and testimony is discussed, as is the exclusion of persons, again, who are unrepentant of sin. There is another classic Baptist defense of the limits of excommunication and the proper biblical separation of the authorities of church and state. He says, quote, "...the exclusion of a person from a Christian church does not subject him to fines or imprisonment. It interferes not with the business of the civil magistrate. It makes no change in the natural and civil relations between husbands and wives, parents and children." masters, and servants. He concludes his treatise with a call to brotherly love, which he names as the chief duty between church members. Again, this section is full of biblical directives woven into a lovely set of goals. Fawcett says he, quote, enlarged the more upon this head because I apprehend it to be of great importance and am afraid it is too much neglected. The treatment isn't perfect, of course. There are a few historical allusions that are inaccurate, but this doesn't detract from or disprove his points. I highly recommend the book as an introduction to Baptist order and a fine example of the centuries-long continuity of thought in this area by particular Baptists. You can find reprint copies easily online. Thank you for listening today. This is Ron the Baptist wishing you grace and peace. Thank mm-hmm. you.